I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to Audible, we can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I listen to Audible frequently and use it for some of the reference materials we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the podcast, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a great offer and a great way to support the show. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. History of the Marine Corps is also on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. Patreon is one of the ways we will make that happen. Patreon is a way for supporters of the podcast to directly support the show. And depending on what tier you join, you get perks and access no one else gets. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. Thanks for your time and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 59 of History of the Marine Corps. The Halls of Montezuma. Last week's episode introduced the Marines and their involvement in eastern Mexico. We followed the U.S. military as they made their way to critical Mexican ports. The episode ended with the siege of Veracruz and the Marines preparing for Chapultepec. This week's episode gets into preparations for the Battle of Chapultepec. U.S. forces capture the remaining Mexican ports, and we spend the second half following the Marines to the halls of Montezuma. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The loss of Veracruz was a significant blow to Mexico. The port provided most of the war supplies for the Mexican military. And now, that it is in the control of the United States, many of the resources needed to support the war were cut off. Connor saw this as an opportunity to try to take Alvarado for a third time. He had learned from his past mistakes, and instead of attacking only from the sea, he would deploy land forces to help with the siege. Major General John A. Quitman oversaw the land operations. He led three regiments a squadron of dragoons, and an artillery unit to the rear of the city on March 30th. The army's purpose was to stop the retreating Mexican military and attack the town from the rear. While Quitman and his forces were traveling by land, 
Connor sent the steamer Scourge to blockade the fort. The ship commander was Lieutenant Hunter, and his mission was securing the fort until Connor and Quitman arrived. But Hunter had a different plan. Upon his arrival, the Scourge attacked the forts. His first attack didn't accomplish much, but when he attacked on day two, the Mexican military in the town evacuated. Hunter took his steamer and headed up the river, taking Mexican ships as he advanced. When Quitman and Connor finally arrived, they discovered that Hunter already had control of the town. However, the Mexican military once again escaped and took with them their supplies, ammunition, and their horses. Quitman and Connor were furious that Hunter disobeyed their orders and attacked Alvarado on his own. He was court-martialed and kicked out of the Navy for disobedience of orders. But still, Alvarado was in the United States' possession, and Navy Captain Isaac Mayo was put in charge of the port. A detachment of Marines was given to him to help defend the town. The number of Marines assigned to Alvarado slowly grew, and by 1848, a battalion of Marines were assigned to the town. Veracruz and Alvarado were the last two most important ports to the Mexican army. And now that they were under the control of the United States, Mexican relied on Tuxpan for their supplies. Three large forts guarded the port, and around 650 Mexican troops were garrisoned there. Commodore Perry oversaw taking Tuxpan, and his plan consisted of preparing a landing brigade. Edson and his marines would make up a battalion of this brigade. The landing force was trained and given special drills to prepare for the attack. As the landing party attacked from land, U.S. naval forces would provide support from the sea. This operation's total size was 1,489 officers, marines, and sailors, and they carried with them four pieces of artillery. The plan was to start the attack on April 15th, but due to an incoming storm, the decision was made to wait until the weather was more cooperative. It took three days for the storm to die, but the United States moved forward as planned. On April 18th, the attacking force advanced on the forts. Steamers and gunboats proceeded up the river and returned fire on the forts as quickly as possible while the landing forces attacked from the flanks in the rear. The forts were taken with relative ease and the landing party destroyed the guns and captured the forts. The entire U.S. fleet only saw 14 casualties. With Veracruz, Alvarado, and Tuxpan captured, President Polk looked towards the capital per his plan. One of the last places standing in the way of the United States was San Juan Bautista. As we discussed during the last episode, Perry and his marines and sailors traveled to Frontera headed up the Tabasco River, and stopped the military at San Juan Bautista. But after successfully taking the two towns, Marines were sent back to the Mississippi and a small fleet was left behind to blockade Frontera. But without U.S. forces garrisoned in the captured town, Mexican forces slowly came back to San Juan Bautista and recaptured this land for themselves. Now the United States had to deal with a considerable Mexican force at San Juan Bautista and fortified positions throughout the river. This was the last port in Mexico where foreign nations were still providing supplies to the Mexican army. 
Perry gathered a force of 1,173, which included Edson and his Marines, placed them on 15 ships, and sailed towards the Tabasco River on June 13, 1847. Upon entering the river on the 14th, Perry faced no resistance. It wasn't until they were 12 miles from their target that Mexican forces began to fire on them. Perry expected this resistance, but the Mexican army deployed barricades in the river itself, which weren't too effective. Return fire from the American ships was enough to stop the Mexican forces, and Perry spent the rest of the night removing the barricades in the river. The next morning, Perry advanced towards San Luis Bautista. As they moved up the river, the resistance grew. Bombardments from U.S. naval vessels weren't enough anymore, and Perry had to send in his land forces. He dispatched small boats, manned with sailors and marines, to face the Mexican army. The landing conditions were difficult, but U.S. forces managed to reach the shore with seven artillery pieces in about ten minutes. Fifteen minutes after landing, the United States was in position and prepared to advance on the city. As they pushed forward, Marines and sailors would encounter Mexican forces along the way. Perry handled each defense similarly. The steamers would open fire on the resistance, land forces would move in, and the Mexican military would flee. When they reached San Luis Bautista, Perry found 400 Mexican forces guarding the town. The United States significantly outnumbered the army, and instead of defending, the Mexicans quickly retreated. Perry positioned about 300 sailors and 115 Marines in San Luis Batista and boarded the rest of his force onto his ships. The garrison sailors and Marines would encounter occasional attacks. However, the Mexican army wasn't the biggest threat to the Marines. It was the mosquitoes, and yellow fever was rampant in the area. 36 out of the 66 Marines on board the Mississippi contracted yellow fever. This threat was a big blow to the United States, and significantly crippled forces. Back in Washington, Congress was facing problems as well. They originally authorized a force of 50,000 short-term volunteers that would serve in the United States Army strictly for this war. But they didn't bother to think about the replacements, even though President Polk and the War Department had recommended extending the volunteer force towards the end of 1846. On March 30, 1847, Congress authorized 10 new regiments for this war. The Marines were authorized additional forces as well, and although not as impressive as 10 regiments, Congress increased the strength of the Marine Corps by 12 officers and 1,000 enlisted. Bureaucracy and a lack of volunteers caused a delay, and it would be a while before additional forces would arrive in Mexico to support the current U.S. military. The U.S. now had Mexico City in their scope, but as the army advanced towards the capital, they found that the enlistment terms for 3,700 of their force was about to expire, which would put a significant dent in their strength. The army had about 7,000 men left to take the capital city. This strength was not enough to face the Mexican army, and the U.S. army decided to wait in Puebla until additional forces arrived. It would be three months until the army would start to see additional forces arrive in Puebla. 
However, the number of men to arrive was only slightly over a thousand. This force was still smaller than the 3,700 who left. To top it off, there were 2,000 who were sick with yellow fever. The Marine Corps wasn't having better luck finding recruits. But when they finally gathered enough men to form a regiment, they were sent to support the army in Puebla. The Marines were placed in a regiment and were led by Lieutenant Colonel Samuel E. Watson, with Major Levi Twigg second in command. Like the American Indian Wars, Archibald Henderson used every resource he had for the upcoming battle. Only a small sergeant's guard was left to fortify ports in the United States, and every Marine available was sent to support this battle. Only three days after the regiment was organized were they sent to Mexico. Most of this regiment was new, and they weren't trained. Marines from the home squadron were called in to help as well. Perry wasn't willing to give up his Marines. They were guarding Frontera, Alvarado, Tabasco, Veracruz, and a few other important locations. He held off as much as possible and only sent available Marines. Only 28 enlisted and one officer were sent. On July 16th, the Marines started to arrive at Puebla. They were assigned to Army Major General Winfield Scott and were responsible as the rear guard. The first few days were harsh. The route was primarily sand, which made it exceedingly difficult to travel on. Horses weren't trained, and Marines had to spend most of their energy breaking horses and getting wagons unstuck. Once they got through the sand, they faced steep hills and Mexican guerrilla forces hiding in the area. And once these obstacles were cleared, the Marines faced three days of torrential downpour that flooded their camps. By July 21st, the United States reached the National Bridge over the Antigua River. 150 Mexicans were there and defended their position. One of the U.S. infantry regiments flanked the defending forces, and with help from artillery, caused the Mexican army to retreat. On August 6, the U.S. military finally reached their destination and prepared to advance on the capital city. The Marines were assigned to Scott's 4th Division under General Quitman. By August 8, Scott realized that additional forces probably weren't coming. Every possible troop available for battle was gathered and prepared to attack. He only left a few of the sick and injured behind to guard the base in the rear. Once the men were gathered, Scott was reported to, quote, draw his sword, throw away his scabbard, and started for Mexico City to obtain what was then demanded a conquered peace from the Mexican government, unquote. During this whole time, Santa Ana was preparing for the United States attack on Mexico City. He started recruiting as well, but with much more success than the U.S. Mexican forces were around 32,000, while the U.S. had about 12,000. The United States was significantly outnumbered. Scott understood this. He also understood that retreat wasn't a possibility. His men would be hunted down, so they were going into this battle as the underdog with essentially two options. Win and take the capital city, or die. Getting to Mexico City wouldn't be an easy task. 
the United States would have to navigate through a labyrinth of marshes and lakes and fortifications defended by a larger military force. They also faced a five-mile diameter lava flow that stood in between the army and the capital city. After they crossed this unique barrier, the U.S. faced the Mexican army at the Battle of Churubusco. Scott wouldn't use the Marines in this battle, and they were left to guard the wagon train in the rear. The Marines weren't happy about this decision. They wanted to see some action, but their time wouldn't be now. The army was exhausted. They just traveled through difficult terrain and fought a battle. Instead of continuing to fight, Scott decided to try and make peace with the Mexican government. He sent a State Department representative to negotiate. A peace treaty wasn't an option for Mexico, and they denied negotiations. The U.S. military continued their advance, and on September 8th, after intense fighting, the U.S. suffered extensively. Scott had lost 30% of his men, and his army was less than 7,000. The Marines were still held in reserve. A council of war was held, and after a lot of debate and resistance from other military leaders, Scott decided to take the castle of Chapultepec. The Marines were finally authorized to be used. On September 11th, they advanced to one mile from the castle. This was their opportunity to live up to the success of Marines who came before them. Not only was this a huge battle, but the Marines would be responsible for the most difficult route. The castle of Chapultepec stands on a mountain rising 200 feet. There are steep slopes on the south side, which is where the Marines would be attacking from. U.S. forces were aware of Santa Ana's ruthless behavior. In a battle that occurred before the troops reached Chapultepec, the army was stopped while attacking Molino del Rey, and many men were left wounded on the battlefield. U.S. forces watched as the Mexican military approached the injured and murdered them. This thought was still fresh in the mind of U.S. forces, and they understood that the only option was to fight. The Marines arguably had the toughest route to the castle. They understood the consequences of failing. It was either take Chapultepec or die trying. The United States' plan for Chapultepec was to attack from the south, which would be handled by the Marines. All available artillery would be used in this attack. Before the castle could be reached, U.S. forces would have to navigate through multiple barriers of defense. There were also 700 men garrisoned in the fort. On September 12th, the attack began. The artillery bombarded the castle all day, which caused extensive damage to Mexican defenses. When the bombardment stopped, Major Twiggs and a detachment of Marines were sent to gather intelligence and hopefully provoke the enemy into an attack that would give away their positions. Their plan worked, and as the Mexican army saw the reconnaissance patrol, they began firing at the Marines with both muskets and artillery. The Marines accomplished their mission and started to head back to the remaining battalion. However, the Mexican army assumed that they were retreating. They left their defenses and followed the Marines. They were instantly met with fire from Quitman's main line, which forced them to retreat to their defenses. With the Mexican army's positions revealed, 
Scott decided that he would attack the castle the next day. U.S. forces were organized into special storming parties. They were given special assignments that were to take place during the front line's main attack. Six storming parties were created, and two of them would be led by Marine officers. A few other parties had Marines assigned to them as well. Major Twig led a party made up of 120 men, and he was to play a major role in the assault of the south side of Chapultepec. To prepare for the battle, artillery units moved as close as they possibly could to the castle. On the morning of the 13th, the Marines advanced. They faced heavy musket and artillery fire as they approached the castle and were forced to take cover in a nearby ditch. The defense was effective, and Marines faced many casualties and used up most of their ammunition. Major Twiggs was frustrated with the delay. He decided to lead the assault by rushing towards the Mexican defenses. As he stood up and prepared to advance, he was shot and immediately killed by enemy fire. To the Marines' right was General Smith's brigade, and as they advanced, the defense changed their target, which freed up the Marines. Marine Captain George Terrett, part of Charlie Company, was one of the detachments who led the attack of U.S. forces and had gained considerable ground on the castle. He and his men, which consisted of seven officers and 36 enlisted, successfully neutralized the Mexican artillery that halted the Marines' progress earlier. Terra and the Marines continued the advance, passed most U.S. forces, and headed towards the northwestern gate. With the defending battery no longer a threat, the rest of the Marine battalion moved to the castle's base and stormed the castle gates. One Mexican eyewitness described the Marines and said they, quote, swept on like a flood, unquote, as they advanced through the gates. The Marines faced resistance by a small group of Mexican forces, but the defenders threw down their arms and surrendered after a short engagement. Terrett and his Marines continued their attack, and after destroying enemy artillery, they advanced a few hundred yards north. Mexican lancers confronted them, and a short skirmish occurred. The Marines were successful in defeating this force, but several would be lost during this confrontation. But this loss didn't stop Terrett and his Marines. They continued their advance, picking up men along the way, and dynamically made their way towards the castle. When they were halfway up the hill, towards the northeastern gate, Terrett faced a large group of Mexicans defending a strong, fortified position. The Marines were able to advance to within 50 yards of the enemy, but resistance was too great. He stopped his men, organized a small force to flank the enemy on the left, which caused the Mexican forces to retreat. This small force of Marines was making history. Despite overwhelming odds, they made significant progress on Chapultepec, but it came at a substantial loss. After this recent engagement, Terra only had about 20 Marines left, but he continued to advance and immediately lost four more Marines. When he reached the gate, the remaining Marines were joined by a young Lieutenant Ulysses S. Grant, who had about 20 soldiers himself. The two units teamed up, captured the gate, and entered the city, making them the first Americans to do so. 
They held the position for 15 minutes until Terrett was ordered to take his Marines to one of Major Hunter's brigades. Under their new command, the Marines attacked and captured a vital position and stayed there for two days. Terrett and his Marines were without a doubt the most courageous and had the most impressive actions during the entire war. Due to their heroic actions, Captain Terrett, First Lieutenant John D. Sims, and Second Lieutenant Charles A. Henderson, who was the son of Archibald Henderson, were all breveted for their heroic conduct. Quitman took this opportunity to restructure his men and prepare to take the southwestern gate. As he was planning his next move, he looked up across the city, where he saw the roofs of houses covered with people watching this battle. The Marine Battalion was quickly formed and ready to march across the National Plaza to their target, the Halls of Montezuma. They received a resupply of ammunition and advanced towards the city. The Marines advanced to within 300 yards of the gate. The defense was strong, and after several failed attempts at breaking the walls, Quitman spent the night digging in and preparing for another attack. As the sun rose the next morning, U.S. troops were welcomed with the white flag and an invitation to enter the city. Santa Ana and the remaining Mexican forces had fled during the night. It was a tough battle, and Quitman led U.S. forces as they entered the gates. He was exhausted, on foot, and only had one shoe. An American flag was raised over the halls of Montezuma, and the Marines had the job of clearing the area from the looters who took advantage of the fleeing Santa Ana. The Marines quickly settled in and started patrolling the grounds. A Mexican bystander stated, quote, They are all and each of them heroes. Unquote. This was the last important battle of the war. After the U.S. took Chapultepec, Santa Ana resigned from the presidency with his remaining forces and left the country. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll take a look at what the Marines are doing on the West Coast. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is The Lions of Iwo Jima by Major General Fred Haynes. The planning and strategy that went into Iwo Jima is something that is easily overlooked when we talk about this bloody battle. It reminds me of that success is an iceberg meme. We see the famous Joe Rosenthal picture of the flag raising on Iwo Jima, but everything that led up to that victory is often overlooked. This book follows part of the 28th Marines who captured Mount Sarabachi. From training at Camp Pendleton to the planting of the flag, I was fascinated by the preparations that went into the planning of this campaign. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, Please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why.
I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.